If you would open up with me to Revelation chapter 3, to the last of the seven letters from the risen Son of Man to the seven churches of Asia Minor. Beginning in verse 14, we read, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus told the parable of the sower and the soils to instruct his disciples and teach them regarding the different responses which people have to the word of the gospel. In the parable, the sower goes forth to sow seed, which Jesus says represents the word of the kingdom, the gospel of Christ. Some seed fell upon the hard footpath that bordered the fields. And because the path was hard and trodden down, the seed did not penetrate. And the birds came and plucked the seed up and devoured it. Jesus said this soil represents the hard heart which is impervious to the gospel. In whose case Satan comes and snatches away the seed before it can sink in, and they reject the word of Christ out of hand. Some seed fell upon the rocky soil. The seed penetrated, but not deep enough. There was some initial growth, but there was no root. And when the sun came up, what growth there was withered away and died, being scorched by the heat. This soil, Jesus said, represents those who receive the word of the gospel initially with joy and with great emotion, but their faith, as it were, is shallow and dubious, for when the heat of tribulation and persecution comes, their unbelief is revealed for what it is, and they fall away. Some seed fell among the thorns and was soon choked out. This soil represents those whose heart and whose life is cluttered with the cares of this world and with the deceitfulness of riches, such that what growth appears at first is soon 
choked out and crowded out. And the plant becomes unfruitful and eventually dies for lack of nourishment. The last soil is the good soil. The seed penetrates and the roots grow deep and strong. And the plant being continually nourished by water and light produces much fruit. These are the Christians in whose hearts the gospel has penetrated and germinated and has sprung to life. They have deep roots. They produce, produce much fruit and they endure to the end through tribulation, through persecution, and through all of the cares of this world. It is the third type of soil that demands our attention this morning. What does it look like for an apparent believer to be choked out, as Jesus says, by the cares of this world and by the deceitfulness of riches? What is the deceitfulness of riches? What lie does money tell us? What false promise does wealth make? And how does the pursuit of wealth and the cares of this world choke out our fruit and kill our faith? And how can we tell whether we are among those who are being deceived? Well, I'll tell you this. I don't think that it is obvious and evident on the surface. In most cases, a third soil type of Christian, so to speak, is not one who just blatantly says, forget about Jesus. Money is my God now. I'm done with following Christ. Now I'm pursuing currency and comfort with abandon. Those words never come out of their mouth. Not usually. Because that would be so obvious it would hardly even qualify as deceit. No, I think the deceitfulness of riches of which Jesus speaks is far more subtle. So subtle, in fact, that I think many in American churches have succumbed to it and are plunging headlong into ruin and destruction, all the while believing that their souls are safe. No, I'll tell you what I believe lies at the foot, at the root, rather, of this deception. Here is the great lie which Satan says to churches and to church members, all the while dangling the dollar in front of our eyes. You ready? Here's the deceitfulness of riches, I think. It is the lie which says that Christ will be your Savior while money, comfort, is your God. And it's not true. In other words, the lie says that you can spend your life serving money and chasing after all of the comfort and the pleasures that money can buy and still inherit everlasting life, but you can't. No man can serve two masters. Either Christ is your God or comfort is your God. Either you live to make Christ glorious, or you're, you spend your life in the pursuit of making yourself comfortable. 
Either Jesus is your treasure or there is something else that is utmost in your affections, driving your decisions and determining your destiny. And if you don't believe that this is the deceitfulness of riches, ask yourself what exactly Jesus meant when he said how hard it is for the rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Truly I say to you, it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. What did he mean? What did Jesus mean if not that there must be a choice between seeking comfort and seeking Christ? What did Jesus mean when he told the rich young ruler to sell all that he owned, give it to the poor, and then he would have treasure in heaven and to come follow him? It seems to me that Jesus was creating an irreconcilable conflict between living for comfort and living for Christ. In this final letter from the risen Son of Man to the seven churches of Asia Minor, Jesus writes to the lukewarm church in Laodicea, a church which had believed the lie and had succumbed to the deceitfulness of riches and the cares of this world. In other words... A third soil church. This is evident from the posture of their heart which Jesus reveals for us in verse 17. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I have need of nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Now it's doubtful that the Laodiceans actually spoke such things, but rather that these were the thoughts and the intentions of their hearts, which Jesus, with his eyes like a flame of fire, is able to discern. And you can see the deception in those words, the deception that had pervaded the church in that phrase, not realizing that, okay? So they were under this assumption, operating under the illusion, I'm rich, I've prospered. I don't need anything. I'm able to buy everything that I need and everything that I want. I am an island of self-sufficiency. Not realizing that they have nothing of everlasting value. They are wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. These were not people who had outwardly abandoned the faith to chase after the American dream, so to speak. Otherwise, they would not have been present to receive this letter from the risen Christ, and his warning would have been of no avail. These are church members, still attending Sunday morning services, still singing songs, still hearing sermons, still taking the sacraments, and it is to them It is to us that Jesus' words come home with crushing, devastating force. You say you are rich, but you are wretched. You say you are prosperous, but you are pitiable and poor. You say you need nothing, but you are blind and you are naked and you have nothing. You think that all is well. But you are deceived, and you are destitute, and you are damned. 
unless you come to me in empty-handed desperation that I may provide everything that you need out of the inexhaustible riches of my grace. Beloved, the Laodicean letter could have been written to the American church. Indeed, in the providence of God, it was. John Stott wrote regarding this letter, quote, Perhaps none of the seven letters is more appropriate to the 20th century church than this. It describes vividly the respectable, sentimental, nominal, skin-deep religiosity which is so widespread among us today. Our Christianity is flabby and it is anemic. We appear to have taken a lukewarm bath of religion, end quote. It's true in 1982 and it's true today. As we work through this final letter, I trust that you will see more than a few similarities and connections between the Laodicean church of the first century and the American church of the 21st century. Indeed, I hope that you will see some similarities between this church and our church. And we pray that God would be pleased to give us ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches so that we would not be deceived by riches and make a God out of comfort and thereby cease to truly follow Christ. So God give us ears to hear. The letter begins with this now familiar formula in verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Now there are a number of facts about the city of Laodicea which you need to know if you are to feel the full weight of Jesus' words to this lukewarm church. The city was located at the intersection of, of two major trade routes that ran through Asia Minor. One running east to west from Ephesus on the Aegean coast all the way into the interior of Asia Minor, the other one running north and south from Pergamum down to the Mediterranean coast. The fertile ground that surrounded the city of Laodicea was prime grazing land for sheep, and the city was consequently famous for its production of a soft, glossy, black wool and the various textile industries associated with it. And due to its strategic trade location and commercial success, Laodicea became a banking capital of the Roman Empire. Wealth from all over the empire flowed through the city. And finally, Laodicea was well known for its medical school and for its production of pharmaceuticals. In particular, Laodicea produced an eye salve that was famous in the ancient world. It was made from Phrygian powder that was mixed with oil. And all of these factors, the trade route, the grazing land, the wool, the textile productions, the medical school, the eye south, all of these factors combined to make Laodicea the wealthiest city in Western Asia Minor. But Laodicea had one major weakness. It lacked a clean water supply. One commentator wrote that the city's location had been determined by its road system rather than by its natural resources. Water, therefore, had to be 
brought in from springs six miles to the south through a system of stone pipes three feet in diameter. And by the time the water arrived in the city, having traveled those six miles, it was lukewarm and dirty. Now you can see how all of these factors form the backdrop for Jesus' message to the church at Laodicea. The members of the church were wealthy and they were comfortable as a result of the city's banking, textile, and medical industries. But in the eyes of Jesus, they were poor, blind, and naked. As lukewarm as the water which flowed through the city pipes. Why that is will become apparent as we work our way through this letter. Well, to the church in Laodicea, Jesus introduced himself as the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. So let's, let's take a look at those three descriptions and see how they relate to the body of the letter. Jesus refers to himself first as the Amen. The Greek word amen means truly or true. And it's likely a reference to Isaiah 65, 16. Jesus is fond of quoting from the prophet Isaiah throughout these letters. In 65, 16 in the prophet Isaiah, the Lord is called the God of truth. Literally, in the Greek, he is called the God of amen, who creates a new heavens and a new earth. So that Jesus refers to himself as the amen speaks to the fact that he is the God of truth. He is the source and the fountainhead of all that is true. He is the one who is, in fact, the way and the truth and the life. And because Jesus is the God of truth, the God of amen, he is the faithful and true witness. The Laodiceans imagined that they were rich and prosperous and having need of nothing. That's their testimony about their own condition. Jesus' testimony, however, is that they were wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. These are two radically different accounts of the same church. So whose testimony is trustworthy? The lukewarm Laodiceans in their self-diagnosis or the diagnosis of the Amen? The faithful and true witness who knows all and sees all, whose eyes are like a flame of fire and whose word is like a sword proceeding from his mouth. See, it is because Jesus' diagnosis of their spiritual condition differs so radically from their own self-diagnosis that he reminds them of just who exactly he is. I am the God of truth and my testimony is faithful and it is sure. Finally, he is the beginning of God's creation. This does not mean that Jesus was the first being that God created. You want to hear more about that? Come to the kingdom of the cults this Wednesday as we learn about the aberrant Jehovah's Witness Christology. Jesus is not a created being. He is eternally existent, having no beginning and having no end. Rather, this phrase, I am the beginning of God's creation, points to his eternality. He will later say in Revelation twenty-two thirteen, 13, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, 
the beginning and the end. In other words, from him and through him and to him are all things. It speaks to his, real, his role as the instrument of God's creation. Jesus, in other words, is the beginning. That is the source, the beginner of the creation of God. John said much the same thing. The same John who who received this revelation wrote in his gospel in John 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. So He is eternal, and He is God's instrument of creation. The Apostle Paul used a very similar phrase to describe Jesus in his letter to the Colossians. A letter, by the way, which the Laodiceans received some 30 years prior when it was passed back and forth. Paul wrote a letter to Laodicea. We don't have that. And he wrote a letter to to the church at Colossae, which we do have. And in Colossians 4.16, he said, I want you to trade those letters. Paul said in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. That's behind this phrase, the beginning of God's creation. So how do these three titles relate to the message of this letter? Well, more than anything else, these self-deceived Laodiceans need truth and life. So Jesus introduces himself as the God of truth, the God of amen, the one who can provide them with the faithful and true diagnosis so that they can know themselves as they truly are. And he identifies himself as the beginning or the beginner of God's creation so that they will know, I am the source of life. If you would live, you must come to me. They needed truth in life. And he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. Jesus then gives to the church at Laodicea his sure diagnosis, his faithful and true testimony of their faithless and false condition. Verse 15, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I have need of nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. The Laodiceans knew about water. Hierapolis, a city six miles to the north, was famous for its natural hot springs, which were believed to have medicinal or therapeutic value. Colossae, which was ten miles to the east, had a ready supply of crystal clear cold drinking water from a nearby mountain stream. Laodicea, on the other hand, had neither of those things. It sat on the banks of the Lycus River, which was polluted and undrinkable. The water supply to the city, piped in from six miles to the south, was tepid and dirty by the time that it arrived. 
So unlike the hot springs at Hierapolis or the cold water of Colossae, the lukewarm water of Laodicea was worthless and it was nauseating, just like the church. And unless they repent, Jesus says, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. John MacArthur writes that some churches make, make the Lord weep, others make him angry, The Laodicean church made him sick. It's not a good place to be. What was it about Laodicea that so nauseated the Savior? Well, he explains in verse 17. You say, I am rich, I have prospered, I have need of nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. So much sin, so much deception, so much depravity lies behind those words. I am rich. I have prospered. I don't need a thing from any man or from any God. See, they were self-sufficient, which is not a virtue in which Jesus delights. They were self-sufficient. They thought they needed nothing but what their riches and their prosperity could buy. See, Jesus was to them an accessory to their life rather than the necessity of their life. Just something tacked on to what they had constructed themselves. This is my life. This is my home. This is my security. These are my joys and these are my delights. Oh, and I've got an eternal insurance policy. His name is Jesus. They were self-satisfied. Quite pleased, weren't they? With their accomplishments and their success They pulled themselves up by their bootstraps and made something of themselves. And every American says yes and amen, which is good in business, but it's terrible theology. Can't you hear the the echo of the self-made American ideal in these words? It's what has made the American country strong and the American church so weak. They were self-righteous, believing that their wealth and prosperity were sure signs of God's blessing. God must be really pleased with us. Look at what we've made of ourselves. But they were self-deceived, utterly blind to their true spiritual state. What accounts for this radical disconnect between their perceived state and their true spiritual state? condition how could they not know how could they be so blind it's the deceitfulness of riches they had believed the lie of satan which says that you can make a god out of comfort and have christ for a savior but no man can serve two masters the laodiceans They had a master, but it was not Jesus. And due to their material prosperity, they had settled into a certain condition. They had become hardened and calloused in in this condition. They had grown comfortable. 
See, nobody says, I need nothing unless they are surrounded by luxury or else satisfied in Christ. And it was not the latter in the case of the Laodicean church. They had grown complacent. Did you notice that there's no mention in this letter of any spiritual activity at all? They weren't holding fast to the word of Christ and they weren't holding forth the name of Christ. They weren't really doing much of anything. Just like in the parable, the cares of this world, their business interests, and the deceitfulness of riches had choked out their faith and rendered them fruitless. They were compromised. Think about it. With everything, we've been at this for seven weeks now, these letters. With everything that we've come to know about Asia Minor at the end of the first century, about the inseparable connection between industry and idolatry. How had these Christians managed to become so prosperous without also compromising their convictions? And with everything that we've read about persecution in these letters, why is there no mention of persecution in this one? No mention of perseverance, patient endurance, nothing like that. Could it be that there was nothing about this church which could possibly offend the culture around them, the civic authorities? Finally, they were careless. The thought never seemed to have crossed their mind that maybe they weren't actually following Christ, that maybe Jesus wasn't actually pleased with them. But this was the reality, and the amen, the faithful and true witness, says that it is so. They were wretched, pitiable, that is to be pitied, poor, blind, and naked. But all was not lost, because Jesus is a great physician, and the one who has given them this sure diagnosis of their spiritual terminal condition is also willing and able to heal them. And the same great physician who can provide us with a sure diagnosis of our terminal spiritual condition is both willing and able to heal you this morning. I counsel you, he says in verse 18, to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Do you see now how Jesus makes three promises that correspond to their three needs he's just revealed? Though materially rich, he says they were spiritually poor. Therefore, they needed to buy from Jesus gold refined by fire in order that they may purchase the true treasure. So what is this fire-refined gold of which Jesus speaks? And how does one attain it? How does one purchase it? Especially one that Jesus has just said is destitute and has nothing. Well, in 1 Peter 1.7, the Apostle Peter uses the exact same phrase, gold refined by fire. And he uses it to describe a true and genuine 
and tribulation tested faith that is more precious than gold though refined by fire and is found to result in praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, this fire refined gold that Jesus counsels them to to come to him, to purchase from him, is true saving faith. Because it is only true living saving faith that can purchase, so to speak, the true treasure of heaven, which is Christ himself. Matthew 13, 44. You remember that parable? It's very instructive. A man found a treasure hidden in the field, and out of his joy in finding the treasure, he goes and he sells all that he has in order that he may attain the field. And Jesus says, kingdom of heaven's like this. You come to me for gold refined by fire. You come to me for a true and living faith that can see me as the treasure hidden in the field and is willing to abandon all that you possess in order to obtain the treasure. You come to me and I will grant you that kind of faith. And ironically, the only way to buy this heavenly gold is to come to Christ with empty hands. You can't purchase it with money. You can't purchase it with possessions. You can't purchase it with religious attainments. The only way that this this treasure is obtained is through empty-handed repentance, going to Jesus and asking for it. Jesus opposes the proud, he says, but he gives grace freely to the humble. He gives the treasure of heaven, namely himself, through faith to poor, pitiful wretches who admit that they are poor, pitiful wretches and come to him recognizing that he possesses inexhaustible riches of grace. Though Laodicea boasted a thriving textile industry producing fine black wool, Jesus says they were spiritually naked. Thus they needed to receive from Christ white garments with which to clothe themselves and to cover the shame of their nakedness. Now this image of sin rendering us naked and ashamed in the sight of God goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve rebelled against the command of God. And in their guilt and in their shame they tried to hide themselves underneath Garments made from fig leaves. But fig leaves cannot cover the shame and the guilt of sin, and neither could the black wool of Laodicea. The only garments that can cover our nakedness and sin and our shame in the sight of God are the blood-washed garments which Christ gives to those and only those who repent. So he says, come to me. Come to me and I will cover you in my atoning grace and I will clothe you in the robes of my righteousness. Though Laodicea was renowned for its eye salve, the Laodiceans, according to Jesus, the faithful and true witness, were spiritually blind. Thus they needed to come to Christ that he may anoint their eyes with the salve of the Holy Spirit that they may truly see. See, Jesus is the only one that can open the eyes of the blind, enabling us to see ourselves for the very first time as we 
truly are. That is wretched beyond words. And to behold him as he truly is, that is glorious beyond compare. You have just heard in verse 18, look at it. You have just heard in verse 18 a glorious invitation of free grace. Jesus says, come to me. Come to me. Come come now. Bring me your, your spiritual poverty and I will give you heavenly treasure. Bring to me your sin and your shame and your guilt and I will cleanse you with my blood and clothe you with my righteousness and bring to me your blindness and I will make you see. You can hear in Jesus' words the echo of the prophet Isaiah who called out to a disobedient Israel saying, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come and buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And why do you labor for that which cannot satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich Food, incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, said the prophet Isaiah, said the risen Lord Jesus, then and today. He wants you to live. The risen and exalted Son of Man wants you to live, to truly live. And a life lived in the service of money and that which money can buy is not life. It is slavery. A life lived in the service of money, striving after comfort and the pleasures of this world as the driving principle of all of our decisions and all of our existence is slavery. Money is not evil. Don't walk out of here saying, Pastor Tim said we have to take a vow of poverty or else we can't be saved. Money is not evil. Being wealthy is not sin. But I simply give you the words of Scripture. The love of money is the root of all manner of evil. And many, by seeking after it, have plunged their souls into ruin and destruction. 1 Timothy 6, 9 and 10. How hard it is for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of heaven. Beloved, hear those words Hear them and believe them. It is hard for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because being wealthy is sin? No, because being wealthy is fraught with danger. Satan uses money like a little music box in your ear. Lulling us into a a lukewarm, apathetic sleep with the deadly lullaby promising that joy and satisfaction can be bought. And they can't. This is the lie. This is the deceitfulness of riches. And this is what it does. It produces lukewarm pseudo-Christians for whom Money, comfort, and earthly pleasure is their God, and Jesus is some Sunday morning accessory. 
but the end thereof is death. Because Jesus will not be an accessory. He will be the necessity. Or he will be nothing at all. But he wants you to live. He does not want us to remain asleep under the spell of wealth and comfort and pleasures that can be purchased. He wants to awaken us. He longs to be your soul's all-consuming desire and all-satisfying delight. He wants to be your treasure because that is which that will bring him the greatest glory and you the deepest most lasting joy this is love did you catch that written to the most shameful church of the seven with nothing good to say about them jesus says i love you that's why I speak like this. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. So hear this this morning as words of love. Because love always seeks the deepest, most lasting joy for its object. And the deepest, most lasting joy is found in a life that is free from slavery to money and therefore free to pursue Christ with reckless abandon and zeal rather than lukewarm apathy. Jesus loves you. He loves you. And he longs for your repentance that you may truly live. So here's the message and here's the core issue of this letter. At the root of every evil that afflicted and enslaved the church at Laodicea was the love of money. And I would venture to say that the same is true of us. But Jesus has come to us today in the words of the Holy Spirit, what the Spirit has said to the churches, He says to us, and He has come to sever those cords and to break those chains and to set us free. And freedom begins with hearing his knock and opening the door. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. This is a reference to the parable which Jesus told in Luke chapter 12 in which he compares his return to that of a master who is returning to his house from a wedding feast. Jesus said the master stands at the door of the house and knocks and he says, blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Not, not lulled to sleep, but awake when he comes. Listen to what he says. Truly I say, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at the table and he will come and serve them. This letter is his knock on the door of the Laodicean church. If they would hear his voice, and open the door of repentance, they would find a joyful master who will invite them in and who will have them to recline at the table and who will serve them himself. 
But if they ignore his voice and refuse his knock and continue in this apathetic, lukewarm, pseudo-Christianity, the master will burst through the door in judgment and he will throw them out of his house. Or spew them out of his mouth, whatever metaphor you're working with. But to those who conquer, to those who awaken, to those who repent, to those who open the door to the master of the house, to those who expend their lives in the pursuit of Christ rather than the pursuit of comfort, Jesus promises a share in the reign of the everlasting kingdom. Verse 21, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Once again, as it's been in every letter, it's only those who conquer in the tribulation who will come to life and reign with Christ in his kingdom. So whatever form that tribulation takes, now as we come to the end of these letters, whether it, whether it be the slander and the persecution in Smyrna, or the false teachers and the false doctrines in Pergamum and Thyatira, or the lukewarm luxury in Laodicea, whether it comes from the beast, or whether it comes from the false prophet, or whether it comes from the prostitute, whatever tribulation we face it is those who overcome and only those who overcome that is who love Christ more than this life who will enjoy the everlasting benefits of the redemption won by Christ on behalf of his people you cannot serve two masters you cannot serve both Christ and comfort He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So I invite you to close your eyes. Bow your heads. And I want you to hear these words from the risen Christ through the Holy Spirit from this letter to Laodicea. To you. You. Sinner individual, poor, wretched, pitiable, blind, naked. These are the words of the risen Christ to you. He says, eat with me. Reign with me. Have fellowship with me. Know me. Pursue me. Seek Me, find life and joy and peace and meaning and purpose in me. Find forgiveness and grace and mercy in me. Find righteousness and justification in me. And reign with me forever in a kingdom which shall know no end where I have made all things new. Come to me. Do not spend your money on that which is not bread and do not labor for that which will not satisfy. Do not remain in this lukewarm, tepid, pseudo-Christianity that is not life and it will not satisfy neither now nor ever. I stand at the door and knock If you will hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and I will make all things new.
and I will be your all-satisfying treasure. So beloved, go to Him. Go to Him with empty hands. Go to Him in desperate dependence and plead this morning that He would make Himself your soul's deepest delight. Bring to Him your sin and your shame and your guilt and receive for him, from Him the cleansing in His atoning blood and the clothing of His spotless righteousness.